We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Reverend Dr. Sarah Griffith Lund is senior pastor of First Congregational United Church of Christ in Indianapolis, Indiana. She serves nationally as the Minister of Disabilities and Mental Health Justice for the United Church of Christ. She's the author of Blessed Are the Crazy and Blessed Union. Her most recent book, Blessed Youth, is written as a love letter to her late niece, who died by suicide on November 2nd, 2020, at the age of 16. Reverend Dr. Sarah Griffith Lund, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you. It is really a joy to be with you all. It is great to have you back. Uh, this is now our third conversation. And since you were last on the podcast, which was January of 2021, how has silence been impacting your life or how has it been a part of your life? I have discovered that I needed help praying. I was confident that I knew how to pray. And I would have my own words to pray. Thank you very much. And apart from the Lord's Prayer, I didn't really appreciate the prayers of the saints. But the pandemic and family deaths really humbled me. And I ran out of my own words. And so at the encouragement of an Episcopal priest friend, I picked up The Divine Hours, Phyllis Tickle's book, and that whole tradition of the divine office. And it really spoke to me. And I wanted to be part of the cascade of prayers throughout time and space. And so what's changed for me is making time to pray in the morning, these ancient prayers interwoven with scripture. And I found that in the silence in between the words, there was a depth and a richness. And these weren't my own words. There was no pressure on me to think of what to say or to create my own God. It was the gift of God's presence given to me from the past, um, an inheritance of the faith that I never took the time and silence to deeply appreciate. And so praying the divine office, especially in the morning and at night, has literally saved me. There's a beautiful prayer um, every morning begins, and it talks about God has brought me into safety in this new day, that I was brought to this day by God, and I am safe. And in the pandemic, I really needed to hear and be reminded that I was safe and that God would protect me. And the prayer invites me to fulfill God's purpose. And so living one day at a time, being reminded I'm safe. Pray for God to protect me and that for today, if I could follow God's purpose for my life. And so I'm grateful for and this gift of, of prayer and being part of that cascade of prayer and the way silence um, allows me to really honor that space in my, in my faith. 
Yeah, that makes me think a lot about, of course, you know, prayer life and also the pandemic and how the ambiguity of silence can create so much fear and anxiety oftentimes. Yet what I'm hearing you say is kind of, but when we when we tether, when we bind our silence to prayer, we can emerge with this sense of safety and security. And that's just, yeah, it's really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. The pandemic has felt like drowning to me. And so I really need, um, I would say not an anchor so much, but a buoy. So there was a point in the pandemic where I found the buoy and maybe it was this prayer. I mean, I'm just going to name it. That's what it was. I was drowning, lost at sea. I could see the shore, but it was too far to swim to. So I was going to drown and there appeared a buoy. And so I'm just holding on to it for dear life resting, regaining strength so that when I'm ready, I can swim and make it to the shore. I I think what the image here that's so powerful, now you've given me a second one that I want to sit with about the buoy, because that is so perfect. Such a lovely encapsulation of, of a lot of feelings I've had in the pandemic myself. But I jotted down as you were talking and the idea, I don't know why this doesn't strike, has never struck me before, but that beautiful way of saying that like the divine office and the prayers from the tradition that in the past you kind of said, eh, whatever. And then this time they were there for you, these words, but then you unpacked. I don't know if you said this or if this was my interpretation of what you, but I wrote down that these prayers aren't actually, you weren't focusing on the words. You were, you were catching that they were like packages of, and in like a silence that was given to you, they came. So, and, and that's an interesting flip, right? Because I'm thinking if I got a book of prayers, I'm looking at what are these great words and images? I'm not thinking what's the silence buried here. That's not, I'm not thinking that way. I'm thinking, oh, give me these great words. Give me these great images. And you were just saying like, wow, I, I actually got embodied silence from these saints or from the tradition or from the ritual or from wherever you got it and it was given to you, then you, you could discover it anew. You know, that, that is just a, that, that's a sermon in and of itself <laughs> that I feel like I could be unpacked for a long time. That's, that's amazing. The words made the silence safe. Yes. Yes. Mm, so good. Sarah, listening to you, I, I feel like you've been hanging out with Trappist monks because the kinds of things that you're saying remind me so much of some of the conversations I have had with monastics and not just Trappist. I just happen to be connected to a Trappist monastery. But um, I know uh, uh, an Anglican Benedictine monk up in New York who talks about the liturgy of the hours as a window onto eternity. And so this idea that, that, the, that the monastic community gathers seven times a day, essentially to gaze out into eternity. And so, um, so there, I, think, I think you really are entering into a stream that has been very much part of our tradition for a long time. But it's not easy to put it into words, so mm-hmm. we don't know how to talk about it. Sarah, I'm, I really want to move us into talking about your new book and and just the importance of that and I think that this is connected in the way that that you have found a buoy also in 
the importance and the significance of, of your work also being a buoy for so many um, as a place of safety, as a place of respite. And your previous books have focused on breaking the silence about mental health and marriage, as well as mental health and the church. And now you're writing about breaking the silence about mental health among teens and youth specifically. So what was your impetus for this book and, and why now? Why did you decide to engage with this topic now? There's still stigma about mental health challenges, right? And so the stigma is what keeps us ashamed and silenced and hidden behind a mask. And in my family, talking about mental illness is a way to talk about our stories. And so it's really telling stories about um, how God shows up in our life and not deleting or erasing or covering up stories that are too embarrassing, humiliating, um, because then we cover up and we hide part of God's presence in the world. And so it really is holy work to uncover, to recover, to discover, to tell these stories of the mental health challenges and illness. And so for me, it's like, oh, it's biological. Mental health is physical health, it's in our brain. It's genetic. And so in my father who had bipolar disorder, my brother has bipolar disorder. And now uh, the third generation, we have a bipolar diagnosis um, in my extended family. And so it's, it's a love letter to my family and other families like mine where we're, now our children are getting diagnosed. And that's really actually good news because the earliest we diagnose our kids and get them resources and support, the more hope they have. Uh, for a better outcome. Tragically, uh, in my family, we had kids and youth who were diagnosed and treated and others who weren't and kids who were doing well that we didn't have to worry about and kids who were struggling. And the one who was doing well that we didn't have to worry about died by suicide in November of 2020 and shocked us to the core. And so we dangerously assume the children are okay. They're not. The kids are not okay. And so we've seen this revolution of people saying, it's okay to not be okay. And the more we can say that and have the heart to heart with our high achieving, overachieving kids who do not want to disappoint, to really say it's okay to not be okay, to fail a test, to miss school, it's, it'll be okay. And so this book is inspired by my niece's life so that we can save lives. And her dream, uh, it was her last project, the spring before she died, they were encouraged to create a business model and her business model was to create a nonprofit called Sentimental. And this nonprofit would come into schools and do mental health education for the purpose of eliminating the stigma and give teens the resources they needed in order to get help. And so it's a joy to share her vision with the world. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. I'm really struck by you know, the first part of our conversation and then now um, walking into this this aspect of breaking the silence, right? We were, you know, talking about the importance of the way 
you said the words made the silence safe and the way that 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 was a silence that was buoying and helpful but yet the strong importance of of breaking the silence for the sake of quite literally saving lives when it comes to uh, reducing the stigma around mental health maybe this is a question about about shame and silence i think there's a lot you know around stigma right we tend to pair stigma with shame and that kind of sense of negative silence so i do you think that shame and silence go hand in hand when it comes to mental health and how can we continue to reduce this stigma? You remind us in your book um, of many facts, including one in five US adults experience mental illness every year. One in 20 US adults experience serious mental illness each year. One in six youth aged six to 17 experience mental illness every year. Those are some very staggering and important facts. And, and you note that for those teens, for those youth and teens, 50% of lifetime mental illness begins for them by age 14 and 75% by age 24, which is also really, really important in noting that our work starts now in, in working with youth and teens. Our work begins while they're youth and teens. Yes, well, actually, now that statistic is outdated, the newest numbers given the second year of the pandemic are two in five adults could be diagnosed right now with a mental health challenge. And I've recently heard mental illness referred to as a pediatric illness, which is a very helpful reframing um, because so many children, really young, are exhibiting symptoms of distress, anxiety. And so the good news is that uh, as we learn more about intergenerational trauma and historical trauma, the healing we do on ourselves will benefit future generations. And in the book, I explore a little bit more of my story as I continue to uncover the, the hiddenness and the, the deep things that I have forgotten because they were too painful to remember. And my own story of being born into trauma. And I think it's hard to talk about because uh, there's a sense of blame you know, and, and I have a, a really close relationship to my mother. I love her with all of my heart. And so when I talk about being born into trauma, it's almost as if she did something wrong. It was her fault. And that's not the case at all. She loved me as best as she could. And when I was born, she was in a very traumatic uh, situation in an, in an abusive marriage. And so as an infant, I was neglected emotionally by my mother and I was not getting uh, physical nutrients that I needed to thrive. And so what would it be like if we were able to honestly look into our lives stories and name the places where we experienced not enough without blaming people, but simply as a way to more deeply understand um, how in our bodies, we carry trauma. It's very liberating to, to name it and say, oh, and now it makes a lot of sense. And then it invites us to change the narrative for future generations instead of repeating these unspoken, unexamined patterns. So 
following up on the question that Cassie just asked and connecting with the first opening where you were talking about a buoy as opposed to and not and not drowning and feeling like you were drowning. There is a difference here in the silence, as Cassidy's saying, the difference between kind of a silencing that's a shame and a guilt because we're afraid to confront how this hurts and the trauma that we're, I think a lot of us are born into. I think it's, I think more and more of us are starting to reveal that culturally uh, a lot of things in place where for various reasons, I mean, probably economic and political and gender and religion and all sorts of like, quote, norms that harm, that, that are in place that have harmed us. And parents, like you said, have done well as best they could, but may have caused trauma to us. And you're not trying to point blame out. And so, so you have that whole mess. It's very messy. And there's a lot of silencing there. But then the buoy, so the sense of silence as this profound presence, I think it's in your book on page 76, you talk about silence as a presence. And I'm wondering, because I get the sense, I'd like to hear from you, I'd like to figure out how to do this myself, if we could collectively think this out loud here, how do we model this presence so that our students find the buoy, you know, our, our kids find the buoy? And don't find the shame and the guilt, right? Because silence, it's the same word, but they're, it, those are different silences. You know, that's what we talk about on this podcast all the time. There's clearly distinctive things going on here. One silence invites us to life. It gives us safety, gives us refuge. And the other one crushes us. And so how do we embody that for our kids and for ourselves? How do we, how do we offer that? I, I'd like to think that churches are supposed to be that space to model that for us. I'm not so sure they do all the time. Uh, and we should call it when they don't. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering if you found uh, ways of modeling this that would be helpful. So there is a silence that listens. Mm. And in my research, that is going to be one of the keys to supporting our children and teens to listen without judgment. And I love this idea of the compassionate gaze. So if we could hold silence, compassionate gaze, listening with love, unconditional love, and not create a space where we're listening so that we can correct or preach or teach, because it's really too late. It's too late for that. There's been so much harm done by the church. And so the humility to listen with a not knowing, with uh, the sense of mystery, in so many ways, they are the experts of their life. And so what can we learn about their reality and their complexities and their feelings that we are afraid to hear? It's very scary to acknowledge the profound feelings and complex emotions our children are going through. We think we're protecting them, we're shielding them. We're not. If anything, it distances us. And so there's a silence that is a silence born out of fear, not wanting to go there, afraid to what we will uncover and discover. But there is a silence that is a bridge, it could be an intergenerational bridge, 
opening the way forward. We can't go forward without the insight and the wisdom of children. And I don't think our culture likes to believe that children have wisdom. They do. We have a lot to learn from them. And some of the youth that talk about mental health say that when they do try to tell adults, they're not believed, their feelings are not validated. And so it just forces them into an unsafe silence and a covering up and a hiding. And then what's really sad is sometimes I hear that um, people will say, well, I didn't have that when I was a kid. Nobody did that for me. And it's sort of like, you know, you just got to learn the tough way like I did, tough it out. And that is toxic and deadly in 2022. We cannot tell a child or a teen they have got to tough it out. That is emotional neglect. Sarah, I'm a tough it out survivor. Believe me, that is a very prominent conversation in my journey with my therapist. So I just really want to affirm what you just said. If people can take one thing away from this particular episode of the podcast, I hope that could be one of the things people take away. Because I do think there is this kind of self-aggression that gets masked as, oh, you know, I, I just toughed it out. I learned, I learned how to cope. You know, I could do it. Why can't you? And it's kind of like we've, we've put blinders on with how much hostility and aggression is in statements like that. Thank you for saying that. I don't really have a question. I just want to say thank you. It, it feels like the, the language here, follow, you know, jumping on what Carl said, I, I feel the, the two images now that I have or this kind of tangible sense in my body that there is clearly two voices and one voice is one of really much of violence. That's the one that's really shameful and guilt and, and like you said, toxic, it's deadly. Uh, and I, I join in with Carl as being a, a survivor of tough it out. And, it, and I hear that language come out of me out of, you know, because I learned it. Um, I feel like that language, I say it to myself a lot. I say it less to people. And more to myself now. It used, I used to use it everywhere. Now it's just internal. And, and so that's interesting. But then there's this other voice, which is the voice of presence. This I love your language is so evocative, the compassionate gaze, a, a profound space for what could be calling us forth. And it's just, that's just a, profound those two moments there's they're both silent in a way but <laughs> clearly different spirits clearly different backgrounds yeah again i don't know if that's a question so much as just making the connections with the things we've been saying yeah i mean what if we didn't have to tough it out you know what if there was another way because we tough it out are you toughing it out yep you're, you're okay okay yeah we keep on going keep on going until one moment you look over and they're gone because guess what? They could not tough it out. And my niece left a note and it said, I just can't do this anymore. She could not tough it out. So when we tell our kids to tough it out, we are saying, you can die. I almost died, but I didn't die. 
but more and more of our kids are dying. We have a crisis, and this is an all hands on deck. Churches, faith communities, schools, the government, all of us working together to change the culture, to change language, start these conversations really early. I talk about in babies' nurseries, you know, having the ABCs of emotional health and teaching all the words and making up new words so that we can create spaces where we don't have to tough it out, but we can love it out, cry it out, compassion it out. Sarah, I love what you said earlier too about how our own individual healing has a ricochet effect, can impact those that have gone before us, those that come after us, can impact so much, right? The energy we bring into a room where someone might know that we might offer them the compassionate gaze that we're giving to ourselves. And I'm, I'm touched by, by the honesty in this room and just, you know, recognizing the ways that as we heal ourselves and give ourselves the compassion of not having to tough it out, give ourselves the love and the spacious generosity of, of just that we're enough, um, that we don't, have to do everything to to be something um, that our very being, our very existence is is enough. Yeah, I'm just touched by how that inner healing for many of us is a way is a way to participate in this greater healing and bringing that that kind of energy and healing with us when we go into different spaces and when we interact with our children or our nieces and nephews or even other adults even other adults. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to get to work with you. And I sense that, that compassionate gaze all the time from you. And it's such a gift. I cannot overestimate that. So thank you. Thank you. I know it's not my area of expertise. I'm, I don't have a degree or training in psychology and therapy. But I do know enough from my own personal background with it and and from reading, et cetera. Do you have suggestions of how we can, as Cassidy just said, kind of show up, embody for people in a let them know, you know, besides just words, but with our bodies and I don't know, tone of voice or body language or or whatever that it's okay. It's safe. This is, this is a space where you're enough. I think we expect so much of other people and it's nonverbal. Uh, we need, we need a lot, uh, to validate our own selves. And so sometimes we use other people to validate ourselves and for our own ego purposes. And so what would it look like to show up in a room or create a room where your needs are met because you're doing your work and when you're showing up, you're showing up to be fully present, mm. to, to share compassion, to share love. And it's not this unspoken expectation of getting something from other people. Mm. And so what if we created spaces like that? There's a lot of great research about the power of peer groups. And so I would like to share that, you know, one thing that we can do is do our own inner work and then help create communities where um, other people are invited to, to do that work individually and communally. And so that's really a hopeful thing that schools are starting to create mental health clubs 
And so NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, is working with different chapters around the country. And San Antonio has a great model for that. And I love it because some of the youth that want to be in this club have mental health challenges. And so they're wanting to get resources, but others feel like maybe this is my vocation. Like I want to be a therapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist. So I'm developing leadership skills. And so in those clubs, they, they get to create that beloved community and it's part of the school culture. And so I just love that. And um, it's peer led. And so you're not hiring lots of extra staff people. In fact, volunteers from the community will come in and do it for free. And it can be replicated across the country. And faith communities can start these mental health clubs as well. Thank you. That, that's, that's actually a lot of nice things to look at there. So thank you for that. This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. As I'm listening to this conversation, the word that keeps coming up for me is bullying. And I think bullying is far, far more endemic in our culture than we talk about. This is just me speaking like Kevin. I, I, I have no credential, so I'm just spouting off my opinion as a layperson. But, um, but that's my intuitive sense. And um, even the you know, a few minutes ago, the tough it out conversation. I think that is a very subtle kind of bullying, intergenerational bullying that goes on. You know, I remember the phrase, you better stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. That, that was one that was used in, in my family of origin. Again, by a parent who was doing the best they could, you know? I mean, that's the paradox of all this. So I guess my question for you, uh, Pastor Sarah, is what what kind of you know what kind of data do we have to point to kind of the relationship between shame on the one hand, suicide and self harm, you know, all forms of self harm, you know, cutting and so forth, and bullying, and what. It's, again, for those of us who maybe don't have any particular training, I don't, I don't have any young people in my life, you know, certainly none, none of my own descendants. But what can the average person do to try to create a, a culture that moves beyond bullying, a culture of kindness rather than of aggression? Yeah, they see something, say something. So that's another breaking the silence because so much of the bullying in faith communities and churches were some of the worst bullies. Uh, see something, say something. So don't allow patterns to repeat and create a culture of bullying. Uh, unfortunately, my family members have been bullied. Uh, my uh, another relative who is transgender was harassed, bullied, 
and put them into a terrible mental health situation because of it. There's a lot of tragic data about social media and bullying and the harmful impact, especially on young girls, of bullying in social media. It is an issue of feeling bad about ourselves, so we want to make someone else feel bad, right? And it's that lack of self-love, self-acceptance, tearing someone else down so you feel stronger, better. So if you see that happening, you have to say something. And teaching girls to stand up for themselves, to say no, teaching boys or whatever gender a child is, um, what would it look like to offer the emotional social support, you know, in kindergarten? We have a way to know who is at high risk for bullying. What if we were more intentional about connecting to those high risk children and investing in them, getting them the care and support that they need? They're probably being bullied at home and they're acting out patterns that they have learned. I think that's that right there is an interesting point that I know I need to remind myself of that because when I hear the word bully, my mind automatically kind of jumps to this kind of very vague kind of schoolyard picking on or something. I mean, which it can be, but what you just said right there really does broaden what Carl was saying. It's this voice of bullying, this kind of, this aggression that we internalize. And your parents could be a bully. Your uncle can be a bully. Your brother can be, you know, it, it's not, hey, some stranger who comes jumping out of the woodwork and you know, starts beating you up, Kevin. It could be your cousin, you know? I mean, it's just because it's that voice that starts to be the dominant voice. And that, that voice really is in our culture. There is this strong fit in these boxes, do these things kind of thing. I really do appreciate when churches point out what they call social sin. I think that's really what they're getting at is that the voice of some of these institutional things that's even in our churches uh, is a bullying voice uh, and it's, it's structural that causes this kind of problem. So it, it's, I think it's important that that thing you said, hey, they're being bullied at home. I, I wouldn't jump to that place automatically unless I'm like, oh yeah, of course they are. I think that's good to remind myself of that. Kevin, building on that, there's also the internal bully. Right. That we bully ourselves. And, and I know a lot A lot of the work I'm doing, and I'll be very brief since I'm talking about myself, in my own, my own therapeutic journey is about healing my inner bully. So um, I want to join you. I'm the, the, the same here. Why do we do that? Why do we bully ourselves? What is the motivation or the drive for that? I, I think that it's unpacking that. It takes a long time, right? There's layers upon layers, but I think we've already, you've already mentioned, you know, it's a lesson we've learned, maybe at the hands of a loved one. Uh, you know, maybe it's been modeled for us that this is what love is like, you know, if a, if a parent doing the best they can uh, it does this and you say, well, they're doing this out of love and you pick that up. Uh, we've already talked about the idea of low self-esteem. And so then you try to make yourself feel better. So there's a, you split yourself into pieces and try to <laughs> fix yourself up by pulling yourself apart, which is a weird thing. It doesn't make any sense, but you do it. It's, it's so it's really complex and strange, you know, that self-bullying. 
I think even though I'm 61 years old and my parents have both passed away, I think that voice inside me is still trying to prove myself worthy to my, to my dad, especially, but to both of them. Yeah, what if self-bullying is a form of self-harm? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And what would it look like to experience radical self-love? And to free the bully. I, I love the beauty of this conversation in that to normalize that we have that inner bully, that inner critic for the sake of healing that, for the sake of, right? Because it's often something we all hide too. We also, we often don't talk about our negative inner thoughts or our inner bully as, as we're discussing today, just because we either A, think we're the only one that experiences it, or B, we're terrified to let someone see that part, those parts of ourselves, or C, we're, we're trying so hard to push it down that oftentimes it just comes up stronger and, and more painfully. But yet by, right, this very conversation is a movement towards, yeah, and also, right, not, not silencing the bully, but healing the bully healing ourselves right healing ourselves and in turn healing the spaces we walk into well i we keep saying like well say say it's a parent or you know a guardian who loved us the best they could but they did a poor job of it well internal bully you know that self-critic i've caught myself realizing that self-critic actually loves me is actually actually really does want to protect me. It's just it's actually standing up and saying mean things to me to be like to protect me. Like Kevin, be careful. This is dangerous. You know, don't don't act out this way. Don't do, you if you if you don't fit these boxes, you're going to be beaten up. You're going to the world doesn't like that. You know, it's it's kind of a the, the inner critic kind of going amok. You know, it's like an editor who instead of editing the paper, rips it apart, destroys it. The story doesn't make sense anymore because they just take out all the verbs or something, you know, like it, it, it's, it's something along those lines. So I, I love what Cassidy just said. It's a, a freeing of the, of the inner bully, a healing, allowing them to not have to do it like that, not to spend all that energy that way in such unproductive ways that's harmful. And Sarah, what you said earlier, um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Just is earlier in the conversation, you talked about it's not about blaming others. It's not right. Because for some of us, we're talking about our parents or, uh, you know, others in our lives. It's not about blaming others for that, but it's about, can you share more about, about that? Yeah, I've, I've had the, um, the question, you know, when we want to tell our stories, and the stories, because we are connected in community, include other people, how do we tell those stories? And so I've been saying in this book, especially Blessed Youth, I want to tell the story in a way that honors my niece and my family. And so as, as I was editing it, I was reading through it and making sure that this story honors our humanity, fully human. You know, like we've been saying, they did the best that they could. And it's really not an individual problem, it's systemic, right? So we live in a society of bullies. Our you know, prior president was a bully of the highest order. And so what kind of world are we in? What kind of systems have we created 
that um, exacerbate these problems. And so that helped me to look at mental health challenges, suicide prevention as systemic, right? Mental health is a justice issue. And so it really honors the humanity of all of us, you know, the God within each person, the goodness of every person. And I profoundly believe that. My niece who died by suicide was good. She did not go to hell. And so my book has to name that, theologically speaking. Um, she is loved, was loved, and will be loved. And I had an experience um, when I went to uh, visit right after her death of a vision. And it was um, a lot of shadow movement and just a sense of total overwhelm. And I had the sensation that that is what she experienced. Sense of being totally overwhelmed by the shadows. And so I must ask, where was God? Where was God in that moment? And that is the mystery. I do not have the answer to that. But it is our, um, our heart's question and longing for God especially in those places where the shadows are so deep. Sarah, this, this conversation and everything we've, we've talked about today, it, yeah, it makes me really want to emphasize that, that this book is for everyone. I mean, this book is for all of us. And, and can you share a little bit more about, there's a companion um, book called Blessed Youth Survival Guide. Can you share a little bit about that and, and maybe what's your hope for, for the book and the the survival guide. So Blessed Youth, Breaking the Silence with Children and Teens about Mental Illness is for anybody who loves children and teens. Um, this is a way to start conversations in your community, your school, your faith community, your uh, book club. And so Breaking the Silence, that's where we've got to be at. It's an entry point. And so it's for everyone. Then we realized that we want to empower children and teens themselves. And in some Christian cultures that really promote purity cultures, there was a movement to make a purity pledge, to make a promise not to have sex until marriage. Some people actually signed documents. Some people wore a ring, a promise ring. And I thought, well, that was pretty successful. What if we had a pledge that was a pledge around self-harm? And so I make a promise and a pledge that if I have thoughts of self-harm or suicide, I'm going to tell three trusted adults. So this survival guide is a toolkit to create your own safety plan. And the hope is that you do it before you ever even need it. And it also prepares you for when you find out a friend has thoughts of self-harm or suicide. So I'm super excited about this little pocket-sized survival guide and would just love to get it out to every a child and every team in the world. That's my grand dream for the survival guide. And then instead of a purity ring, there's a safety pen with three beads. Each bead is for the safe adult that you are ready to tell if you're having any thoughts of self-harm. Because there's no shame. We all talked about, we all have an inner bully. And what if we thought about the inner bully as um, the gateway to self-harm, right? And so it's not that far off. And so we all really have some kind of experience with self-harm. We just have to say it. And that's the stigma part. You know, this is 
part of being human. We all have these feelings. So let's talk about it and know the warning signs and get help and support before it's too late. I don't think we wanna acknowledge that a lot of us can be really close to the point of suicide. It's actually much more common than we want to say or face. Very common. I'll tell a little story. The first time I worked with a therapist, I was 28 years old. And I didn't present because of suicidal ideation, but I had had those kinds of thoughts. They had been my companion for a number of years. And the first session with this therapist, and I was so nervous because I a therapist was an authority figure and I was scared of authority figures. I mean, all of that was going on. And this fella said, I, I would, if we're going to work together, I'd like to make a couple of agreements. And so one of the agreements involved payment, of course. But then he said, would you make an agreement that you will not harm yourself? And that if you find yourself, you know, I don't care what time of day or night that you will call me, which I've since learned was a really remarkable thing. A small town therapist, I, and maybe it's different in different contexts. But I remember feeling a sense of release in my body. And that that here was some here was here was one of my three trusted adults, even though I was an adult at that point. In, in many ways, I was behaving like a child or a teenager. And this person basically said, I'm one of your trusted adults. And it was such an empowering moment in my mental health journey. So um, so I again, I don't have a question here. I just I love that. I love that. And so I just want to take the time now with all the listeners to promise yourself that you will try your best, that when you have a thought of self-harm or suicide, you will tell a trusted person. And so take a moment now to think of who that person might be. I went to a training and they encouraged us. They said, go ahead and have a sense of who you can tell and um, ask them, say, hey, you're one of my trusted people. So are you okay if I ever get feeling a certain way, I'm going to let you know. I'm okay now, but if I ever, when I get that way, I'm going to reach out to you. Is that okay? And have an agreement in place now so that you will have the support for when that time comes. So you're not alone for, for everyone listening. You are loved. Uh, I love you. I want you to stay. I believe you have a purpose for this world and that um, our healing is collective. And so promise yourself that you will tell a trusted person if you're having any thoughts of self-harm or suicide. We want you to stay. Yeah, and, and for those who maybe don't have that in place yet, but um, are working to get that in place and, and need something now, there's also the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline which people can call 24 hours a day. And I, I just looked up that number real quick. It's 1-800-273-8255. And you can text 741-741. And there's a new hotline, 988. And right now, if you call 988, it'll direct you to a national suicide prevention line. And by July, all over the country, there are going to be local response teams uh, that will be prepared to provide the support you need on the phone and if you need in-person care. So that is one response 
uh, that people are prepared to offer as well, 988. How new is the 988? I had not heard of that. You just it's, dial 988? Yes, dial, if you dial it right now, it'll take you to the suicide prevention hotline. And the vision mm -hmm. is that every um, county will have a 988 crisis response team that will include a social worker and a nurse that they'll talk to on the phone and see what kind of level of care you need. Uh, so it's an alternative to the 911. If you know it's a mental health emergency, you can go ahead and dial 988. That's very hopeful. <laughs> hopeful? H-O-P-E? Yeah. yeah, it's hopeful. Yeah, very hopeful. I don't know. I'm sitting here trying to, I feel like there's a question wanting to come and I don't want to force it because I don't have one and I don't want to just fill the space with words for no reason, but... I feel very moved. This is just, as always, these conversations, every time you show up, just move me to this place of, I guess, just gratitude. I, I really just feel gratitude that we can have this space and this conversation so openly. And, and I thank all of you as my, as my co-patriots here, uh, my companions in being vulnerable and open about, about, about this thing that is for all of us, right? That that's that's I just think I think it really needs to be made clear that this is everybody. This isn't some weird, you know, two freaks on the planet, you know, that's it. Like, no. This is this is all of us. And and how essential this is to to do this well, to to show that love for ourselves and for each other. So the gratitude of having a space like that is uh, is is so large. I just don't have a word for it. It's, it's monumental. Kevin, you 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 began with the word hope. I think the the next question has something to do with hope. Mm. And so let me just articulate that, Sarah. Um, tell us where your hope is right now, and and if you have a story or two of hope, I would love to hear it. Well, you know, I believe that um, children are so ready for us to show up <laughs> and listen, and they're gonna be like, where have you been? But they're gonna say to us, you know, we always say, oh, we've been waiting for the future generation. Well, they are waiting for us <laughs> to show up to this conversation. And so I have so much hope that they are super patient, very forgiving, but also they're done waiting. And so uh, it's like, let's get on the bus, <laughs> let's go. Um, and it is very hopeful because now we're starting to put resources behind it. And that's what older people have. You know, I, t I told my husband, you know, yes, we're getting older, but you know, the years of working, we have a little bit more money than we used to. We used to be young and poor and now we're really old and we have a couple more pennies. So as older people, we have resources to empower young people um, to, to kind of, let's take care of this together and, and love each other. And when, when we delight and love our children, uh, that is contagious. And that love uh, just really unlocks this whole level of healing intergenerational trauma. And so the more we can engage with children in these healing, uh, hopeful, therapeutic, uh, emotional, spiritual health and flourishing, there will be all kinds of, of new openings. 
And so I'm excited about the way that will impact the institutional church, which is very lost when it comes to imagining a future um, that perhaps this is the way we imagine beloved community is focusing on this mental health crisis and the opportunity we have to honor the spirituality of children and the, the beautiful healing that comes when we honor the divine within the youngest among us, that they have the wisdom. They actually have what we need right now. Yeah, you write in your book, blessed are the teens for they carry inside them the power of transformation. And I love the way that you have that refrain throughout your book, those, those blessings. I'm realizing we're, we're towards the end of our conversation here. And I'm just so grateful that you were able to join us today and take the time to be with us. Uh, is there anything that we're missing that you want to mention or that you wanted to get to that we didn't get to today? I do have a story. Great. So one, yes. Yeah, so one of um, the younger generation members of my family, a nephew, uh, who was recently diagnosed with bipolar disorder at age 12, went to a support group that my brother Scott had been going to. It's a bipolar disorder depression support group. He was so proud to bring my mother and my nephew so that uh, his support group could meet his family. And so this, I wasn't there, but the story is that in this group atmosphere, people check in and share. And my nephew was very brave and shared their journey uh, with their bipolar disorder. And by the end of the night when they were finishing and they had shared their story, the group gave them a standing ovation and just said, you are amazing. And it turned out when everyone else had shared their stories, my nephew gave them like these uh, coaching chips tips and was just like encouraging each each adult and my mom said she was just amazed at the ability my nephew had at age 12 to be such an encourager you know so that's what I'm talking about like these kids when we give them permission to show up authentically with all their depth and complexity things that scare us that we're afraid of but we give them space and this we make silence so that they can speak. So what if we shared our power with children, if we became silent, the elders, to allow space for children to speak, the healing that can come was so healing for grandma Gigi to hear her grandson, you know, give testimony and to see these adults just stand up and cheer for this child who had really been such a wise healing presence in that support group. It was amazing. Sounds like an altar call. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. You, you know, 12 step folks, it is church, right? I mean, God is doing amazing things in, in the therapeutic spaces that people have created for themselves. That's a great place to end, but if, I don't want to end it if we have other things to say or make sure, especially if there's anything about the book. Thank you. Thank you so much for your support. I loved our conversation and really value the, the places we went together. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. 
We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.